You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Welcome to Felony Podcast, broadcasting from my living room in majestic Southeast Portland, Oregon. The weather today is a beautiful balmy overcast day which is one of my favorites barometer of 82 and i'm felony in podcast in the society that houses the largest inmate population on earth anything that can be done to curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable and that's what we attempt to accomplish here at felony Inc. podcast one episode at a time as always i'm joined by my great host meg Thibodeau. meg how you doing today all right dick i'm Hanging in, I think I'm a little more of a fan of our Sundays and waiting for Portland summer to appear, but it's kind of comfy since we're all kind of stuck inside anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, might as well not be too nice if we can't go out anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing in the times Uh, of COVID, climate change, and what civil unrest we've got. Uh, the opportunity to uplift the voices of folks that have experience that can be incredibly valuable to the population at this time. I'm really pleased that we get to do this. Yeah, uh, I look forward to this very, very much, and I love this. Uh, I love this podcast completely, and uh, I'm really excited about today. Honestly, I think we're going to have a really great show. Um, our guest today is Tobias Graves, uh, who is the front man of a band called Softkill. And uh, I've been listening to the music all day. Um, I think it's absolutely incredible, personally. And um, I'm really looking forward to this uh, this interview. Uh, Tobias, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, I was standing in the drizzle a second ago, and now it's officially raining. So, hiding under a tree as we speak. <laughs> well, this is officially a 100% authentic Portland interview then, right now. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> So, uh, so Bias, this is your first time joining us. Uh, typically, how we do the the podcast is we start off kind of with getting a glimpse or a taste of what your life was, your upbringing, and what kind of led you on the path of criminal behavior and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, so, I was born in Portland, Maine, and I grew up about 45 minutes north of Boston, Mass, in what they just call the seacoast of New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, I had a typical broken home. My dad and my mom split when I was seven. Uh, my, my father ended up working on the road with a lot of bands, so he wasn't around and I was raised by my mom and, uh, my stepfather, someone that she met and married probably almost immediately. Um, and You know, my mom, I had some kind of gauge and understanding that my mom was an addict and that my dad might be too. Um, I saw some things as a kid that were kind of alarming and I didn't really have a lot of the information for it. So it kind of just remained a mystery. But as time went on, uh, I really didn't see eye to eye with my stepfather. I still had my father in my life, even if it was kind of sporadically. And that made me wonder why there was somebody else trying to fill his shoes. And we really butt heads. Um, 
and it pushed me to hang around a lot of kids that at that point were like the skaters uh and taggers and you know kind of starting down the path of being fans of punk rock and god i guess at like 12 years old we just i went into a store with some friends and they're like this is what we do we you wear this backpack and we open it up and we're going to fill it with beer and you're going to walk out. And I was like, that sounds terrifying. Um, but it just became a constant thing from then on. Like it was just, you know, it, I think like kind of petty crime was, was kind of normalized within that circle. And of course there was like underage drinking and stuff that wasn't really my thing, but I was definitely around it. And, um, that stuff you know just being in what i would consider to be an abusive household um which i won't go too into detail about just because like i'm i'm on really good terms with uh with my mom and my stepfather at this point um i just you know kind of hit the wall with it and i i found some sort of identity and just being a badass you know um i had no understanding or any peers that had dealt with like the true consequences of kind of being out of control. So it kind of felt kind of, there was some, some pseudo invincibility to, you know, doing whatever the heck you wanted to do. Um, but, uh, I would say that for the most part, you know, my, my upbringing pushed me to be out as much as possible. And, kind of fend for myself um around a lot of older kids that were already doing stuff that was far worse than you know my little age bracket at the time and then typically when you're doing that situation uh you're trying to kind of go above and beyond to impress the kids to kind of make you know make them feel like you're you're one of them yeah you have a tendency to overcompensate yeah you're trying to fit in and you know being younger i was at least two years younger and um you know there was there's different levels to, to criminality but my friends were part of a crew like a little i guess you'd call it a gang and they fought other gangs and it was all over nothing but at the same time uh you kind of see that and you normalize it no matter how kind of sick it might make you feel at the time. Um, and I was just like convinced that, you know, mind you just to backtrack, like I, I dealt with some, some, uh, some sexual abuse from babysitters and that made the, the kind of standard I'm turning 13 and getting interested in girls thing, like a very uncomfortable notion. Like it was just a weird reality so i compen i overcompensated on the being a badass being a criminal side of it um so that i could still feel like i was hanging and being accepted even though everybody was trying to get laid at that time well there's power to that too right to be a child that feels so out of control in family life or so confused when there's cognitive dissonance things don't make sense to you there's real power for human beings in um, being part of an ideology, being part of a chosen family, just feeling like you belong and you have some power, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I had, gosh, I mean, it was just like being, 
this one kid that became one of my best friends, he was two years older. He was one of my classmates, older brother. And there was something about his confidence that was the most empowering thing to me. And when I was basically acting crazy enough to where he became my day-to-day best friend, um, I felt like I'd accomplished so much, whereas other kids were preparing for art school or, you know, their whatever academic pursuit they were doing. It was like, I was like, oh, you know, Nick Kelly, shout out Nick Kelly, who's doing great now. That's my best friend. You know, like we, we freaking start fires in the woods and fucking steal beer and are out of control and you can't, you know, we're unstoppable. And it was, um, I felt, I felt incredibly accomplished. And I, I also felt like it was weird to go home and then face family and then put on a front and be somebody kind of completely different. So, um, yeah, I felt like I was part of like some little secret society, uh, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we definitely know how that is growing up like that and kind of the camaraderie of things and now it can kind of lead you off on a, on a different path. Um, at, at what point did you start kind of getting in trouble with the law at this point? So I was getting, I was getting arrested almost instantaneously. <laughs> um, we had like a small police department. Um, we were a small town and we were like, you know, one of the 30 bad kids. Um, I start, I think I got arrested the first time when I was 14 or 15 years old. I never did any, uh, juvenile discipline, probation stuff, whatever. I never got hemmed up in that, which, um, it shaped some kids down and down like a bad path and stuff for me might've been like a good wake up call. Uh, I kind of felt like I skimmed past some of like necessary consequences at that time. Um, but I started getting arrested and then I got like my first, I got like a really stupid charge at 18, my first adult charge, which was driving without a license. I'd stolen my mom's car, crashed it into a a 14 wheeler. And then, uh, two weeks later got arrested for theft from a local convenience store. And I faced the same judge on those two charges. And I remember when he was closing out the first case, he was like, I'm going to go light on you because I feel like you're a good kid and I feel like I'm not going to see you again. And in my mind, I'm like, <laughs> I'm about to be here in like 14 days, but great. Awesome. Um, and I caught my first misdemeanor. I didn't catch any probation again. Um I got to thank my mom for that. My mom came from a really good background, even though I grew up in a really like, she was like the one person who kind of fucked her education off and went a very working class route. And she was still articulate enough to go in there and represent the idea that I was coming from like a stable, good home, which in some ways I was, in a lot of ways I wasn't. Um, so you know, at, at 18 years old, I'd had like ran into a wall a couple times. And uh, what really made stuff start to unravel was at 20 years old, I tried cocaine for the first time and I'd never really had been drunk about 10 times. And I had uh, 
smoked pot like once or twice. I'd found out my dad was a, was a pothead and I'd found out my mom was a drunk and I didn't want anything to do with either of it. But I had started to at 17 kind of hop on buses and go to New York city and hang out on the streets with kids there for like weeks at a time. Uh, and that led to, uh, to doing Coke and immediately something clicked in my brain where I was like, Oh, all that, like insecurity and self doubt, uh, fear for the world, blah, 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 blah. Just immediately went out the window. I feel completely at home in this. Um, and with that, it was like cocaine right into heroin almost immediately right into normalizing a great deal of crime that goes hand in hand with that. Um, and I caught like, God, within a year of that, like three big felonies, big, like, you know, those you're facing 21 years in prison type of, type of deal, um, for like breaking in on a ring burglary, um, grand theft larceny, a bunch of just the same thing, you know, with nine different names so they can really hem you up. Um, and at that point it was like, it didn't scare me. It was just like kind of off, off and running. Um, and the drugs fueled that. It's just kind of once you get adjusted to the temperature, it becomes the new normal at that time, at that point. Yeah. All these things are so scary, um, before they happen and then they happen and you're like, you know, when you're a drug addict, uh, and you're hanging around psychopaths. Um, if this is what's so strange, and I think this is like, there's a lot of misconceptions about this. People think that the, the criminal-minded individuals that you're around when you're like in the streets doing crazy shit, that they're just like all deranged monsters. And for the most part, like there's some of the most interesting artists or just interesting personalities that I've ever experienced. And I've always been somebody that didn't need to be comfortable or stimulated artistically to enjoy someone's company. I was like, Oh, this guy's got the best stories and he's a fucking total nut job. And like when I'm around him, I can't stop laughing. I love this. And you know, we're going to go do this, that and the third together. And of course, there's the uh, the planet that we're uh, you know orbiting around together is drug use, but um, you know then you get locked up, and even if you're just gonna go sit in county for a couple of days, um, it's such a it's such a simple ecosystem to if you know how to talk and you know what not to do, like it's easier than clearly easier than surviving out here. Um, and that felt really exciting to me too. I was like, wow, I'm around all these real crazy psychos, you know, like this is, you know, I kind of just had this, uh, this ideology about the world that like we were, this was all pretty meaningless. <laughs> um, and I guess like later on, I realized subconsciously I was kind of living to die, but at the time it just felt like another chapter in this like fucked up book that was playing out. That was my life. Yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense, man. Um, it, it seemed like you kind of went from zero to 100 real quick, just going from a small town to going to New York. That had to have been really mind-boggling at first and uh, really kind of an awakening experience. 
Oh, um, yeah. And they booted me out. They were like, when I went back to my small town and caught that first, those first felonies, they were like, you've got to go. And I went, wow, am I really in this like age old stereotype of this town ain't big enough for y'all. Like you got to get out of here. And I was like, all right, I'll go. And I went to, uh, out to the West coast. So my, my story is incredibly like blowing in and out of towns. I've lived in almost every single city possible. I committed crimes in all of those cities and, um, you know, they're all their own little, like have their own quirks and it's like all its own little weird landscape of, you know, criminal underground BS. But, um, I, seem to like it's it's weird to call it striving but i seem to do pretty well in all of them um because i was eager like i was eager to stay high and i was eager to stay out of control um but i was not like it took me a while to kind of realize that i was losing uh myself so to speak like that zero to 100 like that felt natural i didn't realize how much i had changed till i kind of got to see myself through those that i'd left behind's eyes you know by going back and dealing with them and they're like what happened like what's up with you all right so uh tobias um so you were facing significant time in prison um this is in new york at the time no this was actually back i had gone back from new york like a full-fledged heroin addict and I showed up in my town. This is one of a couple times where I showed back up and I was like, clearly it's, it's weird to call it advanced, um, in that realm. But I showed up to a lot of people that were starting maybe 10 years late in terms of fucking their lives up. And I've, I had quite a bit of experience and I was like, all right, let me grab the reins on this situation. And, <laughs> Let's let me show you how this crap's done. And immediately it blew up in my face and I was snitched on by every single person involved. <laughs> um, and I was kind of dumbfounded by that. I was like, whoa, really? Like, you know, and it was again, mind you, I should have been wary and understood kind of the socio-political aspects of like everybody's background and where they were at and what the, what, made our friendship and our circle um even go down these paths like how different a lot of us were um but i didn't because i was still even at 20 21 years old like that 13 year old kid trying to fit in so i was just totally like oh yeah we're through thick and thin this is what we're doing you know yeah and that, that essence that the the very core remained the same throughout throughout everything. Um so you you ended up getting convicted in the the small town that you originated from? Yeah, and they luckily just said, All right, pay this, pay that, do this and and get out of here. And um I left almost immediately and what happened was all of the things that they asked me to do, I did very half-assedly, if at all. And all of my charges became, uh, I didn't read the paperwork because I didn't know anything. And these charges I had agreed to, you know, they blossomed into 
steps far severe than they were initially because of me not meeting the requirements of, you know, my plea agreement, so to speak. Yeah, it was so, like a suspended sentence. Exactly. So I'm floating through Earth. I haven't changed. I haven't grown. I'm on the West Coast now. I'm still out of control. And uh, little do I know that I've got felonies X, Y, and Z um, that have, you know, permanently marked my record and any future judge's perception of who I am. You know, because in my mind, I'm like, I'm not doing anything that bad. Um, but you know, I clearly was, so it took, uh, the bubble got popped a bunch of times, but every time I had a judge look at me and go, Oh, you're clearly habitual and you show no remorse and all this stuff. I go, what really? That's what you take from me. I was genuinely surprised by that. Yeah, you probably felt like at the time you had a good heart and you were just kind of caught up in, with the wrong crowd or the wrong situation, and they would have, that should have been more transparent than it was, but they looked at you as a stereotype of the exact opposite. Yeah, and there's there's also like, I had quickly kind of mentally attached or fixed myself to, uh, there's like a criminal code. It's like pretty hilarious that this seems, uh, that this just seemed like so like, Oh yeah, of course. But as long as you are not doing any crime against the child and you're not doing anything domestic or like rape related, then you're in, you're in, you're in proper high standing with the, the criminal world. So I was like, Oh Absolutely. cool. Those are my charges. I'm not doing that stuff. Um, I'm doing almost everything else, but I'm not doing that. So like, I'm going to get to go to my rack and it's going to be fine. Yeah. And you don't really have too much more to worry about after that. Absolutely. And that's like, you know, there's just God, I mean, admittedly, like still to some degree, that's, that's like a normalized outlook for me. Like I still, I'm not condoning crime, but I still like, am like, I understand the path that people go down. And, uh, I don't feel like affixed into regular society just because I'm not committing times and just because I'm clean and raising a kid and running a business. You know what I mean? Like I still like, yeah, I still like identify with that world and um, understand why people get stuck in it in the same way that I do addiction. You know, it's, it's very like kind of universally connected. It's no black or white. You're not a bad person because you commit actions that are illegal or even on some level immoral. Um, there, I think there's a big conversation that's far more nuanced about, you know, what, and certainly we're living in those times, what our laws really have to do with morality or how folks that are on the edges, highly intelligent, highly creative, or coming from places that do not fit the norm, how we all fit together as a society. So it's a really interesting conversation, what actually brings folks to the edges and to the margins and to join into groups of people that are that are on those margins. What is your, so tell us when you say you're running a business, we know you're the lead singer of Soft Kill. Um, is that what you're referring to? Do you have another business? 
No, but, I mean that's it's it's. I guess it is pretty funny to uh, call my band a business. Um, it is. We do though. But, like for that, to <laughs> it be, is. Yeah, but for that to be like the my leading term for it, it's it's a little. It, it does make me laugh. Um, no, so I, you know, I come out of all of this and. I've been locked up in numerous states and I've got charges all over the place. And I'm basically in my mind, I'm like, I'm fucked. And I'm in a relationship with somebody who had years and years of sobriety. They're almost immediately pregnant. And they're saying, yo, I know you feel like you don't have anything to really live for. And I know that it seems like, how are you going to support this child? But you've got a creative side and you've got this music that people care about and you have great ideas. And I really think we can turn this into something. And I'm just like, you're insane. Because the concept of making money off of art is absurd. Like, I just could not, didn't have any peers that did it. Um my dad and my uncle both working in like the big music industry on tours. I looked at that and said, there's that. And then there's this where we're at. And down here, there's no money. And that turned out not to be true. It turned out to be that like enough people connected with what I and my bandmates and my partner, Nicole were creating um, that like even when I sometimes feel that we're ignored by, I guess like these, like the blogs and the stuff that go and they write about and they decide who's going to blow up and who's not. And, you know, we don't get on these like piggybacked support slot tours that put you in front of these huge audiences. We've done it all ourselves. It's been like very, you know, down to the nitty gritty of it and it's grown so much and we've built such an audience that buys everything that we do that at this point enough so much money is coming in in my world like the most i've seen that it's a business like we just moved into an office we spend at least part of every single day planning for the next drop being like new t-shirt designs hoodies recordings um and we plan the year out in the same way that I think a lot of companies do. And I never expected that to be my reality. You know, that was Helen. just like, felt so alien. That is super amazing. We need to stop for just a moment to okay. play an ad and pay some bills, speaking of, and we'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com.
So uh, welcome back to Tony and Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Tobias Grave, uh, frontman, lead singer of the band Softkill. Um, Tobias, so specifically after you got caught up, after you started going to prison, and um, you know, kind of your life was kind of spiraling at that point. I would I would kind of describe it as being. What did things start to transition out of that and into your current reality? Uh, to be completely blunt about it, um, you know, I had progressed to where even coming out of being locked, even coming out of getting locked up every single time, you know, I, that was kind of like the end chapter to every, um, new place that I ended up. There was nothing that kind of like sparked any sort of change internally. I was never like, Oh, at this point, I'm supposed to get my shit together. Um, what had happened was the crime that I was committing was getting heavier and heavier, and I was getting connected into, I'm trying to find like a very vague, appropriate way to put this, but let's just say that I was linked in with like a very established criminal network in the city of Chicago, and I was doing stuff, uh, basically distributing things to stay afloat. And the hand in hand of that is that I was like sucked into a very real war that's taking place in that city. And after years of that and kind of normalizing it, I ended up coming out here to do the other side of my double life, which is occasionally play a soft kill show. When I got off the plane and I was standing outside of this this show, I, I my now partner, Nicole, came up to me and was like, what's up? And I'm watching every car as it drives by me because mentally I was just like, that's something that I've been accustomed to doing. Um, and I was like, you know, I just can't. I guess I'm kind of realizing like how traumatized <laughs> my normal life is at this point and like not saying I'm like totally freaked out by it, but I'm definitely, um, you know, kind of experiencing some sort of like PTSD from stuff that I was doing and seeing and dealing with. And, um, you know, I thought like, God, I just don't want to go back, but I, I ultimately did. And when I went back, um, shit just was like, shit just was very, very real. And I realized at that point that I was going to have to, I was going to have to make a really big change in my life. Um, I, at that point had transitioned from heroin. I did heroin for 13 years of my life, I guess, straight. Um, and I had switched to crystal meth and crystal meth was sending me into like crazy fits of psychosis. Um, I was incredibly paranoid. I was uh, fabricating things that were there because I was seeing stuff happening that wasn't and on and on and on. And I was essentially like, you know, sucked out and gone and ready to, to probably physically going to die at any moment. And uh girl that I ended up in a relationship with and having a child with and now running this business with, kind of went against the advice of everybody around her who was saying you cannot in your own recovery, try to save this person. 
she kind of put her life on the line and it was not an easy thing at all. It took me a very long time to, uh, to kind of just think that my reality off of that drug and having the crutch of that drug, that that was a world that I wanted to live in. Um, and I ended up through music cares going to rehab and I went to rehab in Washington and those 30 days legit changed my life. Um, I had never been punished with rehab. Every time I faced a judge, I, they'd go, is there any reason that you're here again and going crazy? And I'd be like, no, sir. And they'd be like, no substance abuse issues. And I'm like, nope, just inherently bad. And, uh, I, I don't know why I was scared to admit it, or, or I don't think I even necessarily knew that I was like battling addiction. Um, I just kind of thought drugs were part of this. And, you know, when I finally got to go to rehab, I was able to do it with an open mind. Um, and I needed it and I made the decision to go. And, uh, I guess like the, the internal network of narcotics anonymous and, you know, to a lesser degree, Alcoholics Anonymous, they're very similar, but they are different. Um, it started to give me like the foundation to build an actual comfort zone in this world. That's I remember funny. there being a time where I didn't even realize that a life without drugs and alcohol really existed. I can really relate to that. Kind of confusion, you know, you don't want to walk into a situation where your sort of best friend, your addiction is going to be taken away from you. But also there's a very legit sort of psychological place where you don't, you're unable to even see it as a problem because you're surrounded by it. It's and such I, an interesting yeah, paradox. I didn't see it. Like I went into rehab, admittedly, I said, well, I've accepted now that my bandmates and my partner and my family are just so unhip that they don't understand that crystal meth makes me a better person, that I'm more creative, that I'm more excited, that I can function. I won't fuck anybody over. I've got this, you know, cause it's a different, a different drug than heroin where heroin, you're stealing your mom's wedding ring and this and this and that. I'm sure plenty of tweakers do that, but I wasn't, I was like creating art and uh, sucked into definitely a very, rapid intense death cycle but in my mind i was i was like tapping into something that was felt very new and pure but what did it for me is that i accepted that the high that i was getting that there was no unreached high that i was not uh just around the corner from something i'd never felt again what really crushed me was the acceptance that i had then i have to deal with that i had felt everything um, that I had felt the happiest and the saddest that I ever could. And that at this point that life doesn't revolve around this unrealistic spike in dopamine. Um, and that you just, uh, you know, you have to find some sort of track to lock into and that consistency is like definitely leveled down there in the middle. And what was ironic about that is once I did that, I was able to finally be a father and accept my role. And then I started feeling things that I had never felt before. Wow. Surprise. Here I am feeling the love and connection that I have with my kid. Here I am finally feeling the love and connection I have as a partner, as a son, 
as a friend, as a bandmate, and I got to watch all these relationships that had been dangling by a thread kind of bloom into something real. And, you know, like, like I said, the surprise was on me. I hadn't felt everything. I'd been denying growth in almost every aspect of my life by being a criminal and by being on drugs. You know, uh, I saw you say in another interview you did that you used drugs from the age of 20 to uh, 34, so it's like a decade and a half of drug use, consistent drug use, and heavy drug use. I mean, heroin yes. and meth, that's no walk in the park. Um, you also said that you got when you got to the point, you either uh, you chose you could either do drugs or use music as, a, as an outlet. Um, so you said you had started the band South Kill you know, previously prior to going sober. Uh, when you reach sobriety and continue to do music, did you find that your career kind of blossomed more? Things started, dots started connecting and um, everything started expanding at a more rapid rate? Yeah, my, my, my being on drugs definitely was holding everything in that world back. Um, I got to say, you know, on the business aspect of what we're all talking about, my partner, Nicole, uh, Conrad, our guitar player, um, our, our uh, now ex-bassist, Owen, who's one of my best friends in the world, they, you know, did what little they could to keep things kind of together as I was just, like, steering my own ship into the abyss. And when I got clean, you know, my, my, my wife said to me, she's like, dude, like, anything you want is possible if you can just get clean. And my sponsor said the same thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what postcard did you read that on? Or, like, what fortune cookie? Because let me tell you something, like, you can't, like, this is just who I am. I'm doomed. And what a, what a pity party I was stuck in because almost immediately things started to get a lot better for the band. And, uh, now that I've got like legitimate time, now that I'm like in years of sobriety, um, God, like I can't believe the amount of growth that has come from just being able to be connected to it and not um, detached through to having something else, you know, taking the bulk of my attention, especially something as toxic as drugs, you know. Um, it's been unbelievable, but it's also been a huge motivator to through the business and through making art connecting with like a lot of fans that are two, three, four, five years back into the shit that I was in. You know what I mean? Like they're not there yet. Um, and if you've ever been an addict and you read the lyrics, there's might be something within the stuff that I write that you can connect to. It might seem pretty, pretty obvious to some people. And that's been kind of like a cool door to starting some conversations with people that, that need like uh, the push that I got from a lot of people that loved me. And that's a beautiful thing right there. Um, one thing is you've described your band as being, uh, you know, people ask what, what kind of band is soft kill? And you say that it's alternative independent rock and roll music. Um, another thing I, I found was interesting because I've been heavily involved in the music industry, uh, like 20 years ago. And you said that you want something, um, when you're creating music, you want something to give you goosebumps on the opening note. Um, and obviously that's a big thing in the industry that within like five seconds, the majority of people decide whether or not they like a song, uh, statistically. What is it? What do you look for? Like what, 
specifically when you're when you're making music. I mean, it's pretty it's a pretty tall task to give you goosebumps on the opening note. That's a it's a tall order at times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like we get lumped into uh, we're called a post punk band, and they connect us to. You know, the lineage of, like, the Joy Divisions and the Cures and the Depression Modes and stuff. And I don't resent that because um, I appreciate and love those bands. Um, the Cure is, like, a really good example where I feel like almost they're, they're great at being able to suck you in as things progress. But I know that, like, also almost immediately you can really connect with one of their songs or it's just not for you. Um, for me, like I've got my sound in terms of like the limitations of my voice. I can only sing four or five different ways. Um, my guitar playing due to being so fucked up for so long. I didn't grow as a musician. Like I worked within a very specific set of limitations, but I created a sound that, that I create with guitar and my understanding of rhythm and drums and bass and stuff. So when I write demos and write songs, it's within my head and it's definitely coming from a place that's like purely my own. So within the limitations of that, when I try to write songs, I'm always like, and this is sometimes like a huge crutch. I'm trying to get over this is I'm trying to write pop songs. Like I'm trying to come out the gate swinging with hooks um i sometimes lose focus i have to go back and listen to like you know the iconic songs that define rock and roll and go oh it's the voice that's creating the hook that connects it it's not always the guitar it's not always this i have to continue to go back and do research to snap myself out of like my little mold but i'm trying to write catchy music like i'm trying to write um, emotionally moving pop songs, which is not that fucking easy. <laughs> you know, Especially in this day and age. I know, and like in a lot of, there's people that are moved by different things. So for me, what moves me is a hook. Like what moves me is like my favorite songs. I'm just blown away by. Uh, you know, just just the hook of it. Like the dicks hate the police. That song you know it's a punk song but it's it has got such an incredible hook and like when i hear that like it comes on i get those same goosebumps that i always got the first time i heard it i feel that way about specific songs and it took me a long time to realize that you're not always supposed to write those songs somebody was like you know you have to write songs that don't do that to make albums cohesive and i was like what like you write oh the moody track four that's just like repetitious and dark and moody but doesn't really grow into this or that like i guess i can try to do that but that's like not what i want to do you know instinctively definitely um when you started the band or just started working on music in general did you kind of view it as kind of a hobby or were you really like pinpoint like precision serious about kind of making something of yourself through music well, you know, one blessing about being like a full-fledged, like, moronic psychopath was that I had all the time in the world. So things felt, anything felt possible because 
you know, like if you're going to say you like you sell weed for a living, like that is a crime um, unless you're you're in Oregon and getting yeah. it out of business. But <laughs> for a long time, it wasn't kids. But it was like <laughs> if you're selling pot every single day, your day revolves around that. And you definitely know that you're going against the grain and you definitely know that like you are um, making a living out of something that's like very unorthodox. And I feel like that's clearly what music is too. So it didn't feel that foreign to me to like be putting a lot of energy into music. Um, what really held me back from pushing it forward for so long besides drugs is just like a lot of fear. Uh, I had a lot of fear about facing um, just my past and people that I had fucked over, you know, my parents, my family, certain friends that like, I would let my own, I guess, dark place and, and depression really excuse hiding instead of like overcoming like things that just would have been simple conversations to fix. And that's one of the reasons I, I moved around so much is it was easier to just like burn the village down and move on. Um, but once I was able to just like take residence and be happy where I was at, um, you know, I, I would say that like stuff started to grow quickly and I, I realized it never really was a hobby to me. It was always something I was very passionate about. I grew up in a family that, that lived off of the music industry. My dad's been a sound engineer his entire life. My uncle's been a guitar tech and musician his entire life. And, um, yeah, it just, it was normalized since I was a kid. I was drawing stages as a child and going, I'm going to be in a band. This is what I'm going to do. Um, I think everything in between then and now makes it hard for me to like s smile at where I've ended up. But like, it definitely was something that was like part of me since birth. I mean, you know, there's a lot to be said about uh, just the genetic transfer of talent between parent to kid uh, when it comes to the music. Um, I've seen that more more occasions than I can even imagine. Um, and it, it almost, it, it, when it gets to a point where it kind of feels like it's almost your destiny to kind of fill those footsteps and uh, or fill those shoes and go off into that, uh, into that business, into that kind of line of work, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I, and my, you know, not to cut you off, my dad was like, in his mind, he was like, you know, he's a sound engineer and he's brilliant. He's one of the best. He's at half of the stuff that comes out of his mouth. I have, I nod along. I have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Um, he's so dedicated to his craft and was so passionate about it for so long and still is to some degree, even though he's in his mid sixties that, uh, you know, he just has uncovered, like he had this, this passion led to being great. And, um, I think for a long time, like he saw my interest in music, but he was like, you know, couldn't figure out why I was, I was fucking everything off so much. Cause I was very secretive about the path that I was on. I was able to show up to the family functions before I, you know, burned down my route to those, like, and be like, Oh, everything's great. My life's awesome. Let me go to the bathroom for three hours. Um, and he's just like, Oh, you want a career in music? Go be a roadie. And then, um, I don't know if anybody expected that I would like lock into doing 
the exact thing that I wanted to do, which was like be on a stage and performing. Yeah. It's interesting the circuitous path sometimes that we take to the first thing we thought of, right? Like it's, yeah. I find that a lot in my life is, and often sometimes even the things that we're running from our families or our legacies are the thing, are the exact place we end up at. It's really, <laughs> it's really inspirational to me that, um, both that you have come through what you've come through, that you are in this state where you are so honest about recovery as being something that, you know, that edge walking is still very attractive, that being on the margins is still very attractive, but what it takes every day and how you're approaching your band as a legitimate business, as your survival tool, as something that you can actually build to not only put something beautiful into the world, but something that actually might inspire other addicts is really powerful stuff. Um, I super hope that we can have you back. We've got a couple more minutes here, Tobias. Will you tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your music, where they can pay money for your music, stuff like that? Yeah, of course. Um, so social media, Instagram is at softkillpdx. Instagram's where we do the majority of our posting about stuff that's coming up. Um, Facebook, it's like, I think it's like facebook.com softkill Portland, maybe just search softkill. It's on there somewhere. Um, but our store that we run is softkill, softkill.bigcartel.com. But I just actually registered uh, crynowcrylater.com. And that's going to be, that goes straight to the store. And soon we'll go to a page with links to everything kind of connected to us. So awesome. Basically, um, you know, how does your one thing I just want to point out real quick because I was watching earlier uh, on YouTube. If you guys search YouTube Soft Kill on Audio Tree Live, uh, just incredible performance and a really great video. I think everyone would really enjoy watching that. How does um, is your father, is he proud of you? Is he, does he enjoy the music you're doing? Uh, my dad and my uncle, both who I pushed away through my addiction, have come back around and I have incredibly deep relationships with both of them that I'm so happy about. They're both two of the biggest supporters that I have. I'd say legitimate fans, just like I was legitimate fans of them my whole life. So, um, definitely like full force support from them, not just because they have to, but because they want to, which is cool. I mean, what I'm seeing is just really quality music. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, anyone that checks out your music or the videos, anything like that, uh, it's pretty apparent that, you know, you are very professional and very talented, uh, musicians. Um, one thing too, uh, you guys have a video called tinfoil drip. That was uh, obviously shot in Portland, Oregon. Portland being, you know, a very hot spot for heroin use in America. Um, me personally, uh, I don't know if you know anything about me, but I spent a lot of my time in that particular area. You shot that video in, which is, you know, I do stuff at Spice, Kit Kat Club, Dante's, kind of the triangle there. Um, what was your motivation for shooting that video? Motivation for that video, um, my partner and I, and. Uh, uh, Hunter and Kyle, who were doing the graffiti in the video, both, all of us had come from a life of getting locked up and being homeless. Um, all of us have been homeless on the streets of Portland at one point or another. 
I was just trying to basically shine a light on like this hipster hotbed that people kind of, you know, walk through, but never look down at what's happening below. Um, those places, it's still like sobering for me to walk through them and, um, see that people are still out there suffering as much as they are a great deal of people that really touched my life. Uh, as I, you know, have navigated to my own shit show died and, um, all those corners and a lot of those places were replacing roses. That's like the last place that we saw a lot of those people. So kind of just wanted to pay homage to specific individuals that had always really pushed me or any of us to do what, what, what was like meant for us, um, artistically. Um, but didn't get to be here to like celebrate with us. So that was really it. It was just, you know, shining a light on that. I know that people know that Portland's full of junkies. I get that, but there's like a depth and a beauty to that. Um, there's, there's suffering there that's still so real. And some of those people that are stuck out there and babbling to themselves in the tent are like, there's like very incredible individuals within that, think with the right resources, time and money could, could come back out to be in the forefront. It's definitely got that big kind of in memoriam feel to it, you know, which is really, uh, you know, it's very powerful in my opinion. Um, just, we're obviously running out of time, but real quick, uh, for someone listening to the show who might be, um, struggling with drugs and addiction right now and, uh, possibly working on music, what advice would you give them to kind of take things to the next level or just inspire them? Um, you know, uh, the, the main thing, and I, so stereotypical, go to a meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, um, listen to people's stories, realize that not only are you not alone, but that you're not unique in what you're experiencing and going through, no matter how dark and oppressive it feels. And listen for somebody that's telling their story that you connect the most to, that you feel like you could learn from. And reach out to them, get a sponsor and go through that work, like put as much work into doing the right thing for yourself as you have destroying yourself. Um, don't be completely ashamed of where you've been and what you've been through. Don't let that shame crush you and know that redemption internally is possible and that your art will grow considerably once you're able to grab the reins of your life. <clears throat> That's awesome. very, elo- yeah, very eloquently put. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Tobias, thank you so much for joining us today. It is true. It really is. It's amazing. You don't even realize, or folks don't even, you know, in addiction, even in addiction to the the lifestyle of criminality, it's hard to even understand how much time and energy is going into it. And to redirect that is really powerful and and to see people that are human, like you said, the folks like that are babbling incoherently, there's, there's humans in there, there's people. And, um, you know, that's what we're trying to do here is to remind folks that humanity, you know, there's no throwaway humans, that there's redemption is a, is a potential for everyone. I hope you come back and uh, talk to us again sometime. We love to have return guests. This has been an amazing interview. Um, and thank you. Just thank you so much for bringing this authentic story and being really open and awesome. 
thank you for having me. Um, you know, I'm always around if whenever that might be to come back. But uh, I really appreciate having a platform to talk about some of that stuff. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back anytime, man. You've been an amazing guest. Um, if you guys want to check out Softkill, definitely, uh, it's so easy. Just Google Softkill, go to YouTube, look at Softkill. Uh, again, I highly recommend the Audio Tree Live um, performance. Uh, it's just, anyone that knows anything about music, it, you're going, you're not going to be disappointed. Um, I've been a DJ for 20 years. Uh, I know good music when I hear it, and I highly recommend Softkill. Um, on that note, Definitely got to thank you, Tobias Grave, for coming through on the show. Uh, remember, every Friday at 10 a.m. at StartupRadioNetwork.com. Don't need a podcast. Also, don't forget, we're just kind of getting the Instagram and the social media and the Twitter back up and rolling for Felony Inc. Podcast. So give us a follow at Felony Inc. Podcast on Instagram, and we will uh, continue to upload content and new interviews as soon as we get them. And uh, me and Meg signing out, all of us at Felony Inc. Podcast, please stay safe. Uh, Have a good time, and we'll see you next time. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.